Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information, publishing three weekly newspapers, the Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, the Casting Patriot, the annual Bay Community Register, the Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at www.penobscotbaypress.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Healthy Options with host Rhonda Feynman is up next. Good morning, welcome. This is Healthy Options, I'm Rhonda Feynman, and today our guest is Eliezer Sobel, He's the author of the new book, The 99th Monkey, a spiritual journalist misadventures with gurus, messiahs, sex, psychedelics, and other conscious-raising adventures, which tells the remarkable story of this 30-year quest, and his 30-year quest even, for healing, growth, and enlightenment. He's also the author of Wild Heart Dancing, a one-day self-guided creativity retreat book based on the intensive workshops that he's led for many years at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, and uh, at similar growth centers in the U.S. His prize-winning first novel is entitled Minion, Ten Jewish Men in the World That is Heartbroken. He's also the, uh, has been the author of the New Sun magazine in the late 70s. More recently, he's been the publisher of uh, the Wild Heart Journal, and uh, he's also a talented musician. He leads retreats and workshops in the arts and meditation. And uh, he's also very funny. And uh, so I think this is going to be a very enlightening hour about enlightenment. Welcome, Eliezer. Hey, Rhonda. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, but, uh, this is great. The pressure's on for me to be funny now, which is always I'm a sorry. Problem. The pressure is not on because <laughs> whatever is, okay. is. <laughs> See, that'll be funny right there. Um <laughs> The 99th monkey, I guess we have to start at the beginning. Maybe you could uh, tell us what, uh, what that means for you and uh, why, why that sure. title and why this book. Sure. Um, many people may have heard this, but for those who haven't, there was an um, apocryphal story. Apocryphal meaning I'm not sure whether it was true or not, because after, it was initially reported as fact, and then later on it was uh, re- rebu- re- uh, debunked which um, actually annoyed me because I just spent several years <laughs> writing a whole book based on the, on the idea. But in any event, I found the story useful as a metaphor, regardless of whether it's factually true. But here's how the story went. that There was an island in Japan, and uh, I believe the island was Koshima. And in the 50s, the scientists were studying the habits of the monkeys on that island, and they would seed the island with sweet potatoes kind of dropped in the sand as, their di- as the monkey's diet. And they observed over time that the monkeys would dig up the potatoes and, and eat them straight out of the earth, uh, covered in sand, and naturally they kind of tasted gritty. So one day, um, an enterprising young primate named Emo <laughs> figured out that if she took her potato down to the water's edge and rinsed it off, it tasted a whole lot better. So she did that and then showed it to her mother and her playmates and siblings. And so other monkeys began adopting or adapting to this technique where they would bring their potatoes to wash them off because they tasted better. And the practice spread, and it reached a point which... Um, in the original story, they called a critical mass, which, which today we might call a tipping point. 
It's where there were a sufficient number of monkeys, and for the sake of argument, let's say it was 99 monkeys, where the next monkey, the hundredth monkey, when the next monkey washed his or her potato, suddenly a phenomenon occurred where monkeys all over that island spontaneously began washing their potatoes. But more interestingly, monkeys on neighboring islands who had never witnessed the practice began washing their potatoes as well. So, Truly um, a miracle. It was very interesting. And, and what futurists uh, named this at the time was the hundredth monkey syndrome. And they used it as a way to explain how paradigm shifts in our culture occur. And again, it's similar to the current talk about tipping points, that when a sufficient number of people or a critical mass come to a practice or a um, belief system and enough people are behind it, it reaches a point where suddenly it spreads like wildfire. And so the thought was in New Age circles and futurist circles that um, you know, if enough of us, humans came to a place of transcending our more ego-based and competitive individual lives and came into a more globally global awareness, global thinking, uh, loving-kindness kind of attitude, that if enough of us reached that, that kind of transcendent place, the entire world would spontaneously shift to what was hoped to be the new age or the golden age of peace and prosperity on the planet. So I came up with the title The 99th Monkey because I'm someone who spent over 30 years of my life on a spiritual quest that took me far and wide uh, all over the world to meet gurus and to live in spiritual ashrams and do exotic meditation techniques, new age therapies, psychedelic drugs, um, living alone on mountaintop retreat huts without running water or electricity. Uh, I went to great, I went to Brazil to do ancient shamanic potions. I went to great uh, extents to try to find myself, get healed, wake up to a higher self, to enlightenment, find God, whatever terms, you know, people like or can relate to. I spent 30 years doing that, and I tended to be, as far as I could tell, one of the most resistant people in any of these situations um, really often had a hard time gleaning the benefits of what I was experiencing. I would often glean them for a day or two or a week or a month, but I always kind of snapped back to my original fundamental place of basically being a neurotic, suffering guy looking for a way out. And so I decided I was the 99th monkey and that unless um, I could be transformed. I was single-handedly holding back the whole planet from having its paradigm shift into <laughs> the new age. And it's obviously it's tongue-in-cheek, but that's the premise of the title. Okay, so here we are with the 99th monkey. And, um, you know, I think the other, the other major question is, you know, what is enlightenment? What, what is it that you've been trying to, to achieve? You know, what... Well, you know, that's a, that's a very good question, and it's gone through many uh, changes over the years. Initially, for a lot of people and for me, it, it, it was a very kind of esoteric, exotic notion of some altered state and other way of being in the world that would be free of pain and suffering. Um, and then, you know, fast, fast flash forward 30 years, 
and what enlightenment becomes about for me and many of us who have been through the ropes is a very ordinary, simple thing of being a more kind and loving person and, and more giving to the world. So it gets very simple, um, but in those 30 years, it, it can be kind of convoluted and complex. But I would also say um, that enlightenment is a fundamental shift in one's identity of who one believes one to be and, and, and the place within that one acts from into the world, whereas ordinarily we are, most of us, including me, for the most part, constantly identified with our ego, the story of our, the ongoing story of our lives, uh, how is it all going to turn out. It's almost like a soap opera, like will, in my case, will Eliezer ever meet his perfect partner and get married? Will he find his perfect teacher and find enlightenment? Will, you know, how will the story turn out? And there's a great investment in our story, like it's a soap opera. And enlightenment is kind of stepping aside from that whole story and coming into an awareness of the present that is actually whole and complete and, and sufficient into and of itself, no matter what the circumstances of our lives. So I would say... For me, you know, if I had to define enlightenment, which I don't like to do, it has something to do with the ability to be present and appreciative in the present moment and in our highest loving place, regardless of what's going on around us. I mean, it, there's horrible things going on in the world. There can be difficult emotional things going on in our own lives. But is there a place where we can tap into the beauty that's always also present around us? and the possibility of love, which is always already around us. So on that level, nothing ever needs to change in order to enter the enlightened state except our perspective. Very nice. Nicely done. Thanks. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's really struck me uh, about, about the book um, was, even though you're, you're talking about how you weren't, quote, getting it or only getting it for a little bit, um, you constantly would go into these uh, situations with this, it seemed, an open heart to really experience what was happening, which is incredibly brave. And, and the reason I've asked, one of the reasons I've asked you on the show Healthy Options is because uh, a lot of the people listening and a lot of, and as an acupuncturist, a lot of my clients are trying to do that kind of, of self um, inspection or whatever and uh, trying to feel better in the world and, and we have all these stuck places and, and as you say in your uh, the introduction that people often on the spiritual quest write these books, they've had a problem or they're looking for something they go to a, a place they find a, a moment they have the awakening and then everything is fine after and, and since not that mention, not to mention going on Oprah and getting very wealthy Right. Well, this is just you know this is this is on your stepping stone to Oprah. Elia, this is it. You're, you're anyway. I won't. I won't get wealthy on your show, however. Will I? I? Mm, I don't think so. But um, maybe some people will. <laughs> now, maybe a little bit wealth, wealthier. But anyway. Um, so you know, we're talking about how meditation and how a lot of this um, does change our nervous systems from a healthy 
from a, a health point of view, but I'm really interested in, in kind of the, the nitty-gritty that, that has gotten you from, from the beginning of this quest to this moment um, with the great authentic and, and brave idea that, wow, we, we really are just ourselves, aren't we? Yeah, you know, it's a lot easier to be authentic if, you don't, if you're not trying to maintain a, a posture of having all the answers and having, you know, become something other than a human. And that's why some of my favorite teachers over the years, and I, may, I have met umpteen, I mean a, a zillion, because I, I worked as, as an editor of two New Age-type spiritual magazines where my job was to meet every guru that came through New York City and to travel to their ashrams and live with them and study with them and people who were claimed and touted to be the Messiah and the avatar of our age. Uh, I was the guinea pig for a lot of the human potential movement of the last 30 years. So um, my favorite teachers among all those were the ones who did not present themselves as, you know, the enlightened, liberated master, but rather as fellow seekers on the path, doing their best to be truthful and authentic. And people like Ramdas have always done that, and Gabriel Roth has always done that. And, you know, I can go on. Well, uh, Dalai Lama is a big hero because I've, I've yet to find any, uh, I've not yet to find him running any ego trips. <laughs> so, you know, there are those folks out there who are, are more focused in on, yes, just surrender to who you actually are. And you'll find that who you actually are is not only um, beautiful and, and mysterious, but capable of great things in the world without any additional uh, insight. You don't, need the, you don't need the big spiritual awakening that every, we're all waiting for. What we need is available right now where we, where we to relax into it and relax the struggle to fix it and get better and improve ourselves, which is kind of the addiction of the self-help movement and my own addiction for 30 years. I mean, everything I did was trying to get better, trying to find a better self. And uh, as I put in the book somewhere, my book should never be in the self-help section of the bookstore. It should be in a section called No Help Whatsoever. Um, and that's, again, tongue-in-cheek, because I think my book actually might help people, but I, it's definitely not a self-help type book in the same spirit as those that are promising, uh, you know, overnight changes. Right, right. I'm, I'm just, you know, trying not to laugh too, too much uh, out loud here because uh, this, is, this, is, um, this is really the nitty-gritty because we spend a lot of time, and I hear of people spending a lot of time not feeling that they're enough, not feeling that what, what is already given to them is, is okay. So are we talking about self-esteem issues? Are we talking about terror and fear? What are we, are we, how, there's a moment in your book with one of the people that you work with, I think Michael um, Wyman? Wyman? Uh-huh. Yeah. And you talk about um, the power of acknowledgement and that just being acknowledged is somehow a good place to start, that it's okay to be where you are and then you can move from, from that position. Do you, do you feel that that's a valid, uh, a valid starting place? Given Yeah, and, you know, and a lot of spiritual paths mention this, the idea of, self, of acceptance of what is. I mean, um, it's, it's very zen. Uh, it also was presented that way in the, you know, Werner Earhart's S training, which was very popular in the 70s, that um, 
before any major kind of evolution can occur for us in the world, we need to be with exactly what is, exactly who we are and who we're not, you know, what we're capable of and what we're, you know, just taking stock of what is and what our situation is and being with that as a starting point as opposed to the addiction to um, believing that someday in the future were I to change enough things and get, you know, get the right insight, find the right teacher, change to the more rewarding job, find a better partner who doesn't annoy me every day, you know, that we could get all the pieces in place out in the world, out in our external circumstances, and if we got them all together in the right alignment, then we would be happy. Whereas the truth is, if you devote your life to trying to scramble your circumstances into the right alignment, even if you succeed, for one thing, circumstances in life are all impermanent, as the Buddhists would say. Circumstances are constantly shifting and changing. So even if you got it all perfect, it wouldn't stay perfect. Things change. So it'd be better to focus your attention on that which never changes, which is kind of your internal witness consciousness, the, the part of you that's not quite indifferent to your life, but has compassion for it as it is, an ability to enjoy it as it is, and to be productive from what you have and moving into life with a desire to give, rather than moving into life with this neurotic obsession to find and change and fix. Now, well, I just want to backtrack to something you said about five minutes ago. You talked about my going into these things with an open heart. Mm. I, I do think what's unusual about me and, and this book is that I, I notice that there's generally two extremes in the world of spiritual seekers. Either you run into true believers, people who have found their one true teacher or their one true path, it has been very meaningful and successful for them, but somehow they also conclude that since it was so meaningful and successful for them, it's obviously the only real truth, you know, on the block, and devote their lives to kind of pushing that idea on other people. And even if they give lip service to being open to other paths, they actually, if you really pierce in there, you find out, no, their teacher is the guru that knows it all on the planet. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is kind of your secular cynic. And there are certainly a lot of those that you can find in the media who will just automatically discount all spiritual teachings, New Age things, as just so much hokum, and they'll just kind of write it all off cynically and, and you know, look for the emperor's, uh, you know, the emperor's new clothes. I'm not sure I'm using that analogy right, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And I'm somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've certainly never been a true believer. I've maintained a healthy sense of skepticism. But nor am I a complete cynic uh, believing in nothing, because I have certainly had over the 30 years many, many, many powerful, moving experiences of opening, opening to a greater dimension in my being, opening to a more powerful expression of love, opening to, you know, kind of insights about reality. So I have, I've had enough of those to know that there is something here on this, in this world beyond, you know, the cynics, materialist worldview. And yet I also know it's not about kind of a fanatical surrender. So I go into all these things with, like you said, an open heart, open mind to receive what's being offered, try to integrate it, 
often failing to get it. But, you know, I would also have to say that much of it has seeped in very slowly over time. And um, so I think that's what's unusual about me. I have this kind of stance right in the middle. Well, it seems like a healthy survival stance, too. Yeah. I mean, do, do we... First, I just want to say to people who've just tuned in that we are speaking with um, Eliezer Sobel, and uh, we're, he's written the book, The 99th Monkey, and it's a spiritual journalist. It's a book about the spiritual journalist misadventures with gurus, messiahs, sex, psychedelics, and other conscious-raising experiments. You're listening on WERU and Healthy Options. Um, so, yeah, the, it's interesting about the survival, the survival piece, because a lot of the things you talked about, and we'll get into some specifics, too, where it seemed very terrifying to me. And it's, it's an interesting... Um, being surrounded by the true believers, it seems that there's a lot of pressure to kind of give up yourself. And that, uh, personally, for me, is, is, a scary, is a scary notion that somehow I'll, there's a, a drowning in, in, in the, the, the floor shifting a little bit. And yet you, you think that you, you call yourself a zealot, that you're an uh, equal opportunity uh, spiritualist. You know, how did you come in? to these uh, situations and maintain, you know, be able to take in yet also maintain the, the stability. I mean, is there, it's almost the sense of, of totally giving up self and is, is almost, is that, is that a form of madness? Is that where we just lose all anchors? Well, I mean, you the know? truth is on some level I was always jealous of people who found their teacher because suddenly they had certainty about their path. They were no longer seeking and looking for something better. They knew what was true. And there's a lot of confidence that comes with that. And, you know, and for them, often a lot of joy and good stuff. So I was sometimes jealous, but it it just didn't happen for me. When I observed it happening for others, it was roughly equivalent to falling in love. I mean, Hmm. you meet a teacher, and if through whatever uh, confluence of circumstances it touches something so deep in your soul, heart and soul that it's very similar to falling in love with someone because, you know, you feel seen on a very deep level. And I've actually had that experience. I had that when I met Ram Dass um, and, and several other teachers. But um, I think what kept me somewhat aloof and removed and perhaps missing out is that I worked on a magazine in the 70s called The New Sun. It was a spiritual New Age magazine. And like I said, my job was to either meet and experience or interview every guru who came through New York. And because they all wanted publicity in my magazine, I was always on the phone with their head people or their PR people. And it got to be absurd because I would be on the phone with, let's say, a representative of, the Sai Baba movement. Sai Baba by his, has about 30 million followers or more, and they consider him the one living avatar of our age, an avatar being uh, God directly incarnated in human form. You know, he didn't have to kind of get enlightened. He just was born here, sent by God to be here, or is God alive and well, so that kind of thing. So I'd be on the phone with a Sai Baba person, having a conversation in which the underlying assumption from their end was that not only Sai Baba is the one true living avatar of our age, but sort of the assumption was, and and it's obvious, and everybody kind of knows that, or they will soon enough, right? Mm -hmm. Then I would hang up the phone after a conversation, 
and I would get another, you know, the phone would ring a minute later, and it would be the Muktananda, Swami Muktananda's PR person, and it would be <laughs> the same thing. They would be speaking as if the assumption is Swami Muktananda is the only real true transmission alive on the planet. And on and on this would go, from the Rajneesh people to, I mean, Satchitananda even, was a little more sane, I think. But <laughs> I'm I'm impressed with the PR person. You know, the the guru needs you know the PR anyway. Well, that's... I'm just saying every organization, yeah, has of course, who deals with the magazines and the public. So I got to so in that sense, I got a bit cynical, or at least uh, hip to the fact that um, something's off here. They can't all be the one true one, and so I had this sort of journalist remove. I think that's what saved me is I was always more of, you know, as much as I was a genuine spiritual seeker, I was also a genuine journalist, and that gave me a certain distance to stand back and observe and say, well, what is going on here? And in, in the process, participating in it. Yes, and putting myself, throwing myself headlong into the, into the situations because I did want to see what was being offered. And, it was, and I have to say, it's never black and white, like, any teacher in the book that I might sound like I'm being cynical or dismissive of, the truth is they all had something very powerful to offer. They wouldn't be in the position they were in. So what, let's talk for a minute. You talk about the, the shadow side. And I, I loved when you went to the, the all Rashnish all the time, you went to the ashram in, in Oregon. I, it, it made me, it reminded me of, um, of uh, do you remember the, the TV show The Prisoner? I remember it, and I wasn't a... Uh, okay, well, well, in The Prisoner, you know, it was um, this, it was this, they created this village that was all sun and light, and then if you tried to leave, they would have, you know, these, these uh, kind of prisoner large balls come and get you. It was totally absurd, and uh-huh. somehow I was reminded of that. You, you talk about your, that, that experience where you had to buy the robes, and everything was uh, pictures of Rashnish and... You know, that was, that was the, um, you know, you walked into that world. You were in, the, you were in a, a closed system. Yeah, I mean, I'll get back to the Rajneesh in a minute, because when you said that, it reminded me more of the time I um, was sort of, not kidnapped, but I allowed myself to be taken by the Moonies. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that, too. Go ahead. <laughs> which, which sounds more like what you were saying. Mm. I was, um, I was working on the New Sun magazine in New York and heading off to California, just kind of travel around a bit with a backpack. And right before I left, one of my editors on the newspaper or on the magazine called me and said, while you're out there, beware of the creative community project because they're actually Moonies in disguise. So I filed that piece of information away. And then sure enough, one day I'm sitting in the uh, Greyhound bus terminal in San Francisco studying a map wondering where to go next, because I was just kind of bumming around. And these two gorgeous, exquisitely gorgeous young girls, I would have to say they were girls at that point. They were probably, you know, I don't know if they were under 20, but they could have been. And um, I think they were. They were probably 17 or 18. They approached me, and because I didn't realize that uh, single guys studying maps in a bus terminal were obviously, you know, uh, flexible on where they were headed. So I was a prime target. And they seduced me with their charm and their wit and their beauty and got me to come back with them to the center, whatever that was. And when I got to the center, 
There were a bunch of people like me who had been recruited during the day around San Francisco in a similar manner. So we were all gathered in the living room of this uh, apartment complex in um, San Francisco where we were served what I call in the book gruel. Uh, it was hmm. it, it was it made oatmeal kind of look a lot more. I mean, oatmeal would have been appealing. This was kind of gray glop. I mean, this is what the meal was, and they showed us a slideshow of very joyful people playing volleyball in the country and talking about the divine community on Earth, that kind of thing. And when the slideshow was over and dinner was over, they piled us into the elephant bus. Mm. Uh, which was just kind of a painted purple bus that said the elephant bus on the front, uh, which was going to drive us to their camp about two hours north of San Francisco for a weekend experience to learn more about this divine plan. And I got suspicious already on the bus because each of the recruits were apparently assigned a person from the community to sit next to them thus preventing any contact between recruits. I couldn't compare notes with anybody else. I was by the window seat, and sitting right next to me was what they called my big sister, Mm. uh, just someone assigned to me. And they spent the whole ride up on the bus singing the most kind of sickeningly patriotic songs. I mean, I don't mind patriotic songs, but something about, you know, God Bless America in full voice on this bus traveling at night and then uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, where they in- included all the names of the people they had recruited. So I had to sit there and listen to this bus of strangers singing, um, We got a brother whose name is L, coming for to carry me home. <laughs> you know? And it was like, oh, my God. And, and then we get off the bus in the middle of nowhere in, some, you know, in, in the woods in some camp. I don't, I don't remember which county it was in Northern California. And this this idea of keeping me separate from other recruits continued. There was always a big brother or sister monitoring my every step, including in the men's room. They came with me to brush my teeth. They stood outside the stall if I needed to use the toilet. Um, and then during the day, they were with me, some often literally holding my hand. And when we sat down for meals, we'd sit in a circle, and our big brother or sister to our left, would hand us half of their sandwich. Uh, it, it, it was like this Whoa. gross charade of giving, so that suddenly I had one and a half sandwiches, and my big sister—I had a sister. Big sister had half a sandwich, and then we would join hands to say the grace before meals, which in this case was went like this: choo 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 choo, yay yay pow. <laughs> so I'm just thinking, I, you know, I've landed in a loony bin, and the only way I can justify it is in my head. I'm thinking, okay, I'm on an undercover mission for my magazine. I'm totally terrified. I have to say, I read this in the book. I'm like, oh, man. I'm like, how fast can you get out of there? Okay, so you're in it. You're your journalist self. Go ahead. Yeah, well, that's, I'm trying to say, okay, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm doing this undercover study to see what really goes on in order to become a Mooney. Right. Which back then everybody knew sort of had cultish tendencies. And meanwhile, Reverend Moon, by the way, had never been mentioned at all. I mean, you would, you, if I hadn't been warned that ahead of time back in New York, I would have no idea that I was in a Reverend Moon community. And then, you know, our days were filled with lectures, bizarre lectures, where the whole audience of, of people who lived there would, uh, in unison, jump in and, and 
respond to the lecturer with canned phrases at choreographed moments of the speech. It was all very bizarre. And at one point, one of the more crazy things was they had us march up a mountain. And when we got to the top of the mountain, they had us stand uh, across the ridge of the mountain facing out and asked us to sing the song from Sound of Music, Climb Every Mountain, at the top of our lungs. And the only musical accompaniment was a solo trumpeter. I mean, I was just like, <laughs> look, I kept thinking Alan Funt from Candid Camera was going to jump out and say, okay, okay, and it's the, the joke is over. But it wasn't a joke, and I looked around, and there were people in tears. There were people who were really being moved by all this. Hmm. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, anybody is susceptible to brainwashing, including me, so I have to make a promise to myself that no matter how I'm feeling by Monday morning, I'm getting out of here, even if part of me wants to stay. Mm-hmm. Not that not that based on anything so far would make me want to stay. Right. But um, it, mm-hmm. just, it just got stranger and stranger. And by the last night, uh, we had a little campfire where they wanted people to offer songs or stories, and it was kind of like a a cliche of a new age campfire where one woman would sing, offer the song Kumbaya and everybody would hold hands. Someone else did Michael Row the Boat Ashore. And then it was my turn. And I just um, pulled out my guitar and did a song I learned in the Hindu world through Ramdas called Kali Durga, which was a Hindu's devotee's uh, chant to the mother Kali, who's the goddess of destruction and is usually Mm -hmm. depicted with uh, skulls around her neck and dripping with blood, and she's the goddess that destroys all impurities. And so here I am chanting in Sanskrit to this, you know, horrible demoness-type figure. um, Cleansing figure, yes. Yeah, cleansing, actually, yeah. But, But... on the surface, it looks she looks quite frightening, right. and that's my contribution to the Kumbaya circle. So I think everybody <laughs> was kind of wondering who this guy was. But something did happen. What, what amazed me is something did happen within me because after three days of having someone hold my hand, give me their food, um, what else did they do? Uh, you know, you wake up in the morning and there's a guy standing over you with a guitar singing. When the red, red robin comes, bob, bob, bobbing along, wake up, you sleepyhead. You know, they're treating you like a child. And the part of all of us that is a child, somehow on a primordial emotional level, does respond. And I started to see how certain people yes. would get hooked into that. And I was, you know, and then, I, and then one of their leaders was actually a Jewish woman from Long Island, and I'm, I'm Jewish, and she tuned into me and said certain things to me that, showed she got a sense of who I was. So it wasn't as, you know, I'm, the way I'm painting the picture, it sounds like obviously I'm going to get out of there. But I'm also saying I could, un- I could start to feel emotionally what some people must have felt over time. But nevertheless, I, I was true to my vow to get out of there by Monday morning. And what was interesting is as friendly and welcoming as they had been Friday when they picked me up in the street and fed us dinner, put us on the bus, welcomed us. Now that I wanted to leave, nobody said goodbye. Nobody lifted a finger to help me get out of there. And I had to walk five miles through the wood, a path in the woods to find a highway and then hitchhike back to San Francisco. So they weren't so friendly when it was time to leave. Mm. And then just the punchline to this story is a movie came out a few years later called Ticket to Heaven. 
uh, about them about all the Moonies, and I watched it, and the character in the movie went through all the identical stages that I did, including the choo choo choo, and you know all the stuff I had witnessed. He went through, and the only difference in the movie is that he didn't leave Monday morning. And then the rest of the movie was the horror story of what happened to him by not leaving. You know, he ended up being kind of a cult member, giving up his time and all his money and resources and energy to uh, raising money and recruits for Reverend Moon and losing his health because they were feeding him terrible food. Mm. So that was a long-winded answer. No, that's, that's good. Um, I, we are speaking with uh, Eliezer Sobel, author... Uh-huh. He's still the author of The 99th Monkey, A Spiritual Journalist's Misadventures with Gurus, Messiahs, Sex, Psychedelics, and Other Conscious Raising Experiments. Consciousness, by the way. Consciousness. Raising. Consciousness. <laughs> raising experience. Hey, and if I can just throw in a plug, if people are actually interested in that, they can go to www.the99thmonkey.com and read the prologue to see if it's something that interests them. That's great, and we'll mention that again. You are listening uh, to Healthy Options here on WERU, by the way. Well, that was probably one of the more... Oh, I'm Rhonda Feynman, and I'm doing... Yes, thank you. Thank you, Amy. Yes, and that's Amy Brown. She's engineering the show. Way to go. Okay, we're, we're all here. And, and um, let's talk about some of the, uh, some of the other experiences. And, and, you know, this is Healthy Options, and, you know, I... I a lot of us do teach some sort of meditation or some sort of um, movement as part of a healing process in acupuncture and Chinese medicine. That's a, actually Tai Chi and those kinds of things are actually integrated in the healing process. And you said something. Well, you started your you start talk about starting um, as a how old were you when you met Ram Dass, for instance? Were you in your early 20s or still a teenager? Yeah, 23. 23. And then you talked about going into, um, uh, prime, was it primal, the primal therapy right after that? Uh, let me see. Primal therapy was before I met Be- Rhonda. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Well, I know the sequence in the book is different, but yes, it was, it, primal therapy preceded Rhonda. Because you mentioned something about how you were working, walking through the world with, in terror and your stomach was in knots all the time. Right. And your experience after primal therapy was that the knot disappeared. So for whatever you describe with that, um, pros and cons, there was clearly a physiological release for you. Sure. And do you feel like losing that knot was kind of the, uh, the beginning? Like, of, oh, wow, there's something here? There's something more I should look for? Uh, well, I think it came from reading uh, Arthur Janov's book in college uh, called The Primal Scream. And I really resonated with it because it talks about all the kind of pent-up, unexpressed and repressed emotions of childhood and how we've all developed a social persona over on top of our unexpressed feelings just to try to get by in the world. And I felt that very acutely as I was growing up, that I had somehow left behind my true self somewhere around the age of four in order to adapt to what me seemed like a very scary world and so I was very attracted to primal therapy because it promised to release a lot of those early um, physiological emotional uh, feelings stored in the body and allow you to return to a more authentic self sense of self 
And yeah, for me, it manifested um, specifically in the fact that I used to never be without a full bottle of Pepto-Bismol in my pocket uh, as I walked around the world every day, um, slugging it from the bottle, just because I was always in kind of, like I said, knots and nervousness and anxiety, and at, and yes, I would say even terror, um, which is a whole other story, because I come from a Holocaust background, and I really actually, there were a lot of things to indi- you know, that, that, that justified or that, in, that point to terror uh, beyond mere neurotic anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the primal therapy, which is involving a lot of cathartic emotional release, whether it's screaming, whether it's banging pillows, whether it's deep sobbing, whether it's like shrieking in terror, reliving early incidents of childhood. It was definitely a huge release. It did relax the knots in my belly. I gave up the Pepto-Bismol. Um, and, and, and so it was a useful beginning, but it certainly, I can't say that it lasted. You know, I say somewhere in the book that the mind and the heart, in a lot of ways, are like an elastic band. And, the, and each time we try to change something, there's often a temporary release, and then it snaps back like an elastic band to where we were because there's sort of a baseline, the consciousness that we live in, and it's really difficult to to do a a major shift of that. We have a tendency to fall back to what's comfortable and familiar, Mm -hmm. even after profound experiences. After that, you went on and, and, you know, you really were able to put yourself in, and this is before you were the journalist, but really you met, went to Ram Dass's home, had a private session, uh, these kinds of, of serendipity kind of things. I mean, the whole book is filled with them of, of things coming, coming to you, which is kind of a new age idea anyway, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The, the idea that, that things would, would shift and, and, and come to you. Um, do you... You know, there's this whole idea now, people, the whole, uh, uh, down the rabbit hole, the, uh, you know, the whole um, idea of creating reality. And uh, what, what, do you, what do you think about these kinds of terms? I mean, you've seen, you've been through a lot about, about creating reality, about, about being with what is. Um, how, do you feel comfortable or how do you feel about the way people are talking about that now uh, in well, these days? What you just said is kind of diametrically opposed. Creating reality and being with what is are two really different attitudes exactly. to bring into life. So, yeah, back in the 70s, there was the human potential buzzwords of we all create our own reality, our thoughts are powerful, we bring into our lives, you know, what we, uh, you know, we create what we bring into our lives, we draw it to us, everything comes for a reason. And, and I don't viewed all that necessarily, but as a, as a point of view and as a way of living, I mean, it got definitely stretched in the human potential movement to a place where it was not, you know, it, you know, people would start speaking like, well, I was going to have a picnic, but I created a thunderstorm, <clears throat> so we couldn't right. have the picnic. Right. And... And then later in other situations, people, instead of I created, it would be the guru created. <clears throat> you know, I was um, waiting to cross the street, but Sai Baba made the light turn, turn red. Um, so there's kind of a, attributing an external magical thinking quality to one's personal uh, ability to create in the world. What, what I think 
is much more powerful and I think accurate is what we're able to create is our response to what is. Yes. In other words, things occur in life inside us and outside us. And what we are responsible and able to create is how we interpret them, how we respond to them, and how we be with them. So that's a little different than manipulating, again, reality to try to get what you want and, and make things conform to how you think they should be. Uh, it's, and that sometimes works, which makes it confusing. I, I'm not disputing that some people do, you know, are in touch with their creative powers and are able to manifest things and bring them into their lives. However, uh, that's usually based on the notion you can get what you want. You can get whatever you want. Right. And to me, that was sort of a New Age greed point of view. And I learned actually from Werner Erhard and the S training, even though that was a whole other controversial subject. But I, what I did learn there was that if you turn that around from you can get what you want to actually you can want what you get or want what you have, meaning you have the ability now, given the circumstances you've got in this moment, to choose it to be with it, to want it, to accept it. And then your energy is not devoted to struggling to create a reality that you prefer. You can actually prefer the reality you have and operate from there. And then what you're doing is you're coming into life with a giving attitude because you're not, you're not looking to uh, create something different. You're looking to see what you can give, given the situation as it is. Now, there... The, yes, and because the the idea of of only bringing it, it, there's an I, I think an underlying aspect of creating your reality is that you would only create a positive, happy, peaceful reality. And if there's something that contradicts that, then you must have done something wrong, which really gets us into a whole you know idea of blaming the victim. You know, starving people in in other parts of the world did not create their starvation if they would only. Right. You know, uh, if they would only really get it together. Yeah, that's, that was a big pitfall of that kind of thinking as well. Right. Um, and also, the idea of accepting what is doesn't mean that you're not perhaps giving or moving to, if, if you're called, to change things, to, to feed the people or to create a, a better a world. But does it have to do with the subtle not attached to the outcome or not the idea that, that while I might want things to be different, uh, it doesn't, you know, that there is some ease also with what is. Or how, how would you how would you clarify that? Well, it, it, there's not a demand that life be different, which is distinct from compassion to to help alleviate suffering that is there. So you're not demanding reality conform to how you think it should be, but you're still responding to your intuitive, compassionate uh, heart in where you might be of best service to support life and, and help people. So they're not mutually exclusive. It's not like you accept what, it, what is and sit back. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it comes back to what's always said about the Buddha. They always, people are always saying that the Buddha has, has an un, the unbearable smile of compassion and... So people speak a lot about his smile of compassion, but they often skip over the unbearable part. And what I get from that is that when you awaken, like the Buddha awakens, to his true nature, which is 
a nature that's connected to all other beings, you um, there's a smile of there's a smile because you're no longer separate and trapped in your little body and mind and ego. So there's a release of that, and, and so there's the smile. You're, you're you're connected, but the unbearable part is when you're connected, you're connected to all the suffering as well, and you feel it very deeply. So uh, I mentioned this guy Andrew Boyd in my book, who wrote a he wrote a book called Daily Afflictions, and one of his things is um, people think enlightenment is going to be the ultimate bliss ride and end, end all and cure all of all their suffering, when in fact, a genuine enlightenment might be the epiphany you never get over because it establishes you in direct connection with all of life and all beings, and that brings a responsibility and a compassion to want to serve all those people. So as, as he concludes, <clears throat> I am one with the universe, and it hurts, hmm. you know, which is a little different than what most of us think. We think when we are one with the universe, we're just going to disappear in, a, you know, in bliss and float through the clouds. Well, isn't another definition of the enlightened one the fearless one? So in order to be enlightened, you must know fear. So well, you know it all. And that's... that's Right, right there with with that with that quote, yeah. You know, you're also a musician, and you've also done a lot of work with creativity. And can you talk a little bit about, about how that has uh, has moved you through the path of uh, of this journey? Yeah, I think it's I think it's my saving grace or or my sanity saving grace because um, after all the readings of philosophers and spiritual writers and retreats and workshops and meditation techniques and new age techniques and all the other stuff I've done. Um, the arts uh, are a very reliable teacher and don't require any belief systems so that, for example, the work I've done and continue to do with Gabrielle Roth involves a complete surrender into the body itself in rhythm and movement as a way of healing the psyche and the soul. But it doesn't require believing a thing. It just requires being in the body and listening to the messages of the body. And in a similar way, um, singing, <clears throat> I, I do a lot of singing work with people and with myself and writing work with people and myself and, uh, even, and painting. And I find that the... Uh, the dynamic in all four of those art forms for me, dance, paint, writing, and singing, is very similar. That <clears throat> There's a point where if you persist through the inertia and resistance, which many of us have towards our creative process, and you can enter a zone where the seeking mind and the struggling mind and the suffering mind drops away and you're able to tap into kind of a natural, childlike, spontaneous expression using the arts just as vehicles. So it's not about creating great art to put up in the museum. Um, it's about tapping into a voice, whether if it's writing, you're tapping into a voice. If it's singing, you're tapping into kind of the emotional truth of your heart. And if it's um, painting, you're tapping into kind of the intuitive, dreamlike part of your soul. And if it's dance, you're just tapping into the freedom of the physical form to just move in its authentic way. Mm -hmm. And so I have found the arts to be 
my greatest healers. Uh, when all else fails, I can just turn on the music and dance myself empty, mm-hmm. you know, da- dance till I drop, and the mind gets very quiet. And, and for me, it has been a great um, healer and ally, all, all of the arts. And I've taught that. I've taught intensive creativity workshops over the years where I get other people, um, in, you know, other people singing and dancing and writing and painting. I feel like uh, when you're doing that, you have to really overcome people's self-critical uh, notions. We live in the... Oh my, God. oh, my God. Well, that's the whole thing. Not only that, yeah, I have to overcome people's terror. Uh, and beyond that, I have to overcome my own terror because when you're going to ask a group of people to face their terror, it's completely terrifying to me. So um, I would often be unapproachable for a week before I led a workshop because I, I was just feeling all my own fears about being nakedly exposed in public. And like for one of the one of the most powerful exercises I do is putting people alone in front of a room. And I know you're a singer, Rhonda, so this isn't a big deal for you. But for many, many mm-hmm. people to stand alone in front of a room and sing a song um, either often unaccompanied, but sometimes accompanied by me on keyboard or guitar. Um, you know, they'd rather die. It's like yes. people think they'd rather die than public speak. Well, if you think that's hard, people who can't stand public speaking try and having them sing, and often they would end up in tears and going through a whole emotional process. But on the other end of it, there would be very deep healings as they found their voice, and and I'm not talking about a musical voice that had that's on pitch or has anything related to musical prowess. I'm talking about, you know, the way a child might innocently get up and sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star when, it, when an adult can find that same innocence of heart and put it into a song in front of a room. Once they've moved through their terror of that and the emotional sadness that often comes up because they were told all their life that they can't sing, it's a very moving and healing experience. I'm looking at... Um one of the chapters uh, from Lama to Jerusalem, and you talk about, uh, you know, sitting um, with um, some some music, some singers, Rabbi uh, David Zeller, and, and working with uh, uh, Reb Shlomo's work, and, and the idea of having the, the healing song of, our, of, your, of the soul, something without words that touches deeply, and, I, and that, that, that seems to be part of what you're getting people in touch with. So the, your, your work as a teacher has been really valuable in, in making that manifest for a lot of people. Well, yeah, as it, I discovered, you know, I've, I've, I've explored music in a lot of spiritual traditions. I mean, I've chanted mm-hmm. in Hindi and Sanskrit and in Buddhism. There's pol- chants in Pali and in uh, Arabic within the Islamic world and in Judaism and Hebrew. Um, and Native American chants. So I've really explored a lot of religious traditions through music. But what I found is within the Jewish world, there's a subdivision called Hasidism, which is kind of the esoteric, more um, spiritual aspect of Judaism. And they have discovered or believed that singing without words is one of the highest prayers of all because they believe in the power of melody itself to heal the soul. So it's very interesting for me, because it's, since there's no words, 
it becomes immediately ecumenical. I can, I can do songs without words for anybody, Jews, non-Jews, Hindus, doesn't matter because there's no, there's no dogma and there's no ideology and there's no religious belief system built into it. It's just melody. And, um, yeah, so I've had a lot of, I've had a fascination with exploring songs without melody and encouraging people to look within and finding their own melodies that, that are unique to them. Um, there's sort of a, I don't know, you might say it's mythical, but it's a beautiful idea that there's a realm of melody, an ethereal realm of melody. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it's translated to the sanctuary of melody, where melodies already exist whole, and we can reach up, if we're quiet enough inside, and find a melody and pull it down and then deliver it. We're almost like transmitters rather than composers. You know, not unlike Mozart, who said he would just hear a whole symphony whole and then just take dictation. So in a similar way, a lot of the Hasidic Rebbe's would reach up and bring a melody down and would never take credit that this is my melody. It's a melody that, you know, was kind of up there in the sanctuary of melody, and they bring it into the world, and it becomes a very healing force. Well, we don't have much time, but I have, a, I have some really good stories about how those melodies have often impacted people all over the world.